Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. Welcome back to the VanCast. We've got a special holiday episode coming up for all you VIPs. This is me, Harmon Dial here. Farron's on vacation, but uh, a few days ago we pre-recorded a look back at the uh, biggest takeaways from the calendar year of 2022. Everything from Elias Pettersson's star breakout, grading Patrick Alvin's first 12 months as general manager of the Vancouver Canucks, analyzing what's next for Thatcher Demko and what could be on the horizon for this club in 2023. For that, we obviously wanted to um, touch on the recent state of the team. Thankfully, we don't have to spend an hour talking about the uh, the past few games because, boy, I think I'm at the stage after a pair of 5-1 losses against Winnipeg and the Blues consecutively where I'm officially out on the Canucks as a playoff team. I was already skeptical, highly skeptical, I'll say, given the way the team had kind of started, the inconsistency we'd noted, the uncertain you know, state of Thatcher Demko's health and and the season he's been having and knowing that he was such, such a uh, such a critical security blanket for the club last season. But how can you believe in this team making the postseason after what we saw the last couple of games? And most importantly, I think that needs to be sort of the nail in coffin internally for the way the organization looks at this team, whether it's ownership or management. It's time to start really moving in the direction of renovations and the ultimately the tag of whether you want to call it a rebuild or retool doesn't matter to me but it's really time to commit to that direction and and stop for this organization clinging on to this hope of well we still got to keep in mind the the playoffs and 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 trying to even I mean earlier in the season when when this club was still looking at uh moves such as the Stadnika one to try and give this group a bit of a short-term spark I think it's time to for this organization to keep keep its eye on the future. I mean, they've allowed five or more goals against in nearly half the games they've played. Truly, truly astonishing. We heard Bo Horvat after the St. Louis game come out and flatly say, I'm running out of things to say. And that's really the best way to sum up where this organization is at. I mean, Saturday night to have another hockey night in Canada performance against the Jets, against the Jets that was a shocking performance. 
right? That wasn't a game against the Colorado Avalanche or the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Carolina Hurricanes, an elite team like that. This is Winnipeg. This was a team that the Canucks were expected to be right there with as a playoff bubble. Are they going to get in? Are they a coin flip sort of team? And they were totally outclassed. Didn't even look like they were playing in the same league. And yeah, you could point to the fact that Elias Pettersson was out and he's missed the, missed the past uh, two games. So obviously he's their best player. Obviously that's going to huge have a huge impact. But you look back at the Winnipeg game, for example, the Jets were playing without Ehlers, who the past couple of seasons has arguably been their, their best forward, not named Kyle Connor. And he, he, in fact, has missed all but three games. So there you go in terms of the Jets have gone gone without one of their elite forwards and haven't skipped a beat for basically the entire season. But they were without Ehlers. They were without Blake Wheeler, who's chipped in with 26 points in 29 games in addition to driving better two-way results. They've been without Mason Appleton, who's another top nine piece. Nate Schmidt, who's a, who's a top four defender for them. Logan Stanley, who's another everyday defender for them. The Jets were really, really banged up. And you can't point to Pedersen's absence and use that as an excuse for not showing up the last couple of games, the way I look at it uh, anyway. Beyond that, um, another interesting tidbit, Nils Hoaglander demoted uh, to the American League. I wasn't too surprised that it ultimately came to this. Of course, he was scratched uh, the other night um, against St. Louis, but you go back to the game against Winnipeg, and quietly, I think that was uh, one of his uh, worst performances of the season. I mean, nobody had a good night, but him and Garland in particular, it seemed like they were having a really, really rough night uh, defensively. There were multiple plays where he had the puck in the neutral zone, had the ability to sort of try and get the puck puck in deep or make a simple play, something elementary. And for whatever reason, he was just turning the puck over and it led to the Jets being able to counterattack the other way. And that was really the common theme even from that uh, Saturday game was it wasn't just the defenders making mistakes and their turnovers and their inability to gap up and uh, play effective hockey leading to the shocking result we saw. In my opinion, it was mostly the forwards' inability to execute plays and their lack of commitment defensively. And um, I think Hoaglander was at the top of that uh, at the top of that list. And I, I think at this point, we just know he's in Bruce Boudreaux's doghouse. It's time to give him a consistent chance to play in the American League, help him build his confidence. Because when he came in as a rookie to Vancouver, I remember just how confident he was. It seemed like he was just naive and playing in this state of bliss, not worried about making any mistakes, just buzzing around everywhere. It's felt like since Boudreaux has come in and, and since he's gone through his struggles that he doesn't have the same confidence to his game, especially when it comes to the plays that he's uh, making offensively, uh, the lack of finishing we've seen overall since Boudreaux has taken over. I think it's a, I honestly think it's a good thing for him to go down and, and be a top line producer, be the guy help out on the first unit power play, play a ton of minutes and be down with his pal Vasily Podkols and then just kind of grow in that way instead of having the pressure and weight of, boy, I'm in and out of the lineup all the time and especially sort of being in a state where you're worried that each mistake you make could land you back in the press box. I don't think that that's a healthy mindset to have for a young player. You want them to sort of uh, grow and, and and make mistakes in in scenarios where 
they aren't in in high leverage uh, high leverage spots. So I don't mind the decision to kind of send them down there. Um, beyond that, uh, obviously, last thing to touch on Patrick Helfine. I sort of got this organization has the worst timing when it comes to these uh, after hour interviews. He spoke with uh, Scott Oak on uh, on Hockey Night in Canada after the five one loss to uh, to the Jets. Honestly, not a whole lot to take away from that interview. From my perspective, Alvin's honestly a politician. He's never going to directly answer the question. He's the opposite of Rutherford, who's blunt, who's um, straightforward, honest, who isn't afraid to show his cards. Of course, there was more, I think, hesitation when the the, the question of a rebuild came up. And the organization, I think, clearly doesn't want to sort of label it that way. I'm not worried about what tag you put on it. In terms of whether you want to call it a rebuild or a retool, I'm more worried about simply the fact that whatever you call the project, the blueprint for the next few years, you've got to make sure that short-term results can no longer be the top priority in guiding this club's decision-making. And I think that's been abundantly clear this season. It's time to look ahead, time to build for the future. And with that, let's get to break and dive into our holiday special of the VanCast. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. A year-ending edition of the VanCast. It's not actually the end of the year. We've still got a week to go. Uh, Christmas is upon us. We've still got a few more games left in the 2023 season. But we thought, given the fact that Canucks have had a very slow period in their schedule, uh, they've just had a you know, three games, three days in between each game. We thought there was some time and it really gives us an opportunity to look back on the calendar year that was. And really, if ever there was an appropriate time to look at a calendar year, it's with this team because it was late December where a coaching change got made, where a managerial change got made, a president was added. So much change happened to this team. Jim Benning was out. Travis Green was out. Eventually, Jim Rutherford came in. Bruce Boudreaux came in. He then hired uh, Patrick Alvin. Rutherford did, that is. And really, there's been just so much ebb and flow in and around this organization that we thought it was time to to take stock as we head into the Christmas season of the 2022 calendar year for the Vancouver Canucks Arm. Interesting year, to say the least. Yeah, and so many, kind of like you mentioned, ebbs and flows, an emotional roller coaster. I mean, everything from Bruce, there it is, kind of taken off in the second half of last season to the team just missing out on the playoffs. So many sort of sagas in terms of big player personnel decisions. We finally got to see the first 12 months of activity of what uh, of Rutherford and Alvin's vision for kind of building this uh, this roster. And here's an interesting stat for you. It doesn't take it into account uh, the last couple of games, which is sort of when I, I compiled this, uh, this data. But the point uh, remains regardless. For the calendar year of 2022, so far, the Canucks 38, 28, and 12 for 88 points in seven, 78 games. You know, you know where that ranks for, Han? It ranks 17th in the NHL. Which perfect. means that's the perfect Canuck number. Literally, like there's 16 teams that make the playoffs. The Canucks are just on the outside looking in. 
Um, the it is fair to mention that um, it's not as if a win or two will sort of cat- catapult them to 16th either because Winnipeg's next with 95 points in 81 games. So there's a pretty you know sizable edge in, in point percentage and raw points in general. But um, I think that kind of sums up how there's been enough hope to believe in this core group of players at, at various points. I mean, even going into this season for as rough a start as it ultimately ended up being, I think a lot of us expected this team to be competitive for the playoffs. I, I, I honestly think that was the expectation for the fan base. We had Bruce Boudreau talking about how it'd be a massive disappointment if the club doesn't make the playoffs this season. Even at points when the club was absolutely rolling under Boudreaux, it felt like the, the Canucks had life to get into the postseason. But, um, I mean, obviously lots of hockey left to be played for this this remaining season, so, so we'll see if anything sort of changes on the playoff front. But kind of just sums up the calendar year where they're close, they're right there, but, you know, so close yet so far. Yeah, there's no doubt. And, you know, when you look at this team on form and, and we're not going to make this a, a, a negative show about how bad this team has been, but you've got to start there. When you look at this team on form and yes, uh, at the time of this recording, they are Gary Bettman's version of 500. And we know that's not necessarily real 500. It certainly doesn't make you a contender. But when you look at this team, we've said a lot in the last couple of shows how this is basically an everything bagel to quote Thomas Trance. Um, you, you get everything, right? You get spectacular scoring, you get an elite power play, you get kind of ordinary goaltending, you get, uh, you know, not great penalty kill, you get turnovers left and right, you get poor defensive zone awareness, you get all of it in any given game, and it could lead to back-to-back 5-1 losses, it could lead to one-sided victories, it could lead to anything. And one week you're on team playoffs, and let's get this let, let's get this wagon rolling. And then the next week you're like, all right, let's blow it up. And it's time to uh, tank for Bedard. Yeah, it, it is. And I mean, there's an emotional volatility that just comes with being a Canuck fan in this era. There's no way around it. You can just embrace it because that's how we roll here. And let's start with the Canucks best player. And there's, you know, there was a lot of talk last year that their best player was JT Miller. Many believe that when he's on his game, their best player is Thatcher Demko. People talk about the transformative effect that Quinn Hughes has had on this team because, you know, they haven't had a defenseman like him in terms of his offensive creativity and how he sees the game. Of course, there's Bo Horvat. We're going to get into him a little bit later on the importance of him to the franchise, the leadership piece, just who he is as a human being, all of that. But from a true talent perspective, the best Canuck is Elias Pettersson. No doubt about it. However, Last year at this time, there was a doubt about it because he wasn't necessarily playing on top of his game. And I know the defenders will just simply have you say, well, it was the wrist injury. And I was extremely critical of Elias Pettersson during the first half of the 2021-2022 season, really the 2021 portion of that season. And I feel validated because Pettersson had the same criticisms of himself because Everybody else wanted to give him a get-out-of-jail-free card because of the wrist. I watched how he played. The lack of dynamism in his game, Just his, it wasn't just about his shot. It was about a creative playmaking ability that he demonstrated so much in his first two seasons that had just kind of gone away. And prior to the wrist injury in the previous season, there was a drop-off in form as I saw it as well. So it was really a carryover of that. And I wasn't going to attribute it all to the wrist injury. And 
I never advocated for trading the player. Let's be clear here. But I didn't think he was above criticism. And that's where Drancer and I used to get into it a lot because he was just not going to criticize him. And I'm just saying, look, you can't just say that he is, uh, you know, that that it's all, it's all about the wrist. He's not good enough right now. Um, his play was one of the reasons a coach lost his job. But then all of a sudden, he turned it around in an incredible way. And for me, I think the turnaround happened. There was a two-goal game on January the 16th. He had a stretch there of seven points in six games. Then he had three games where he was pointless. Then starting February the 8th, 43 points in 35 games. He never went back-to-back games without a point and was just playing on a, on a really, really high level. And then he's picked that up this season, 34 points in 29 games. Still no power play goals, so it's not like he's doing things that are unsustainable because there's still an area for him to improve. Uh, tied for 20th, as, as I said, in the league, um, but he is showing the best of Elias Pettersson. Absolutely. Uh, and you look at, again, sort of the, the 2022 sort of totals for it combined um, with um, with obviously the the tail end of last season and, and this season, you're looking at 39 goals and 85 points in 76 games. That's a 40-goal, 91-point pace in addition to the two-way impact he's showing and, and how he's kind of evolved as um, as a penalty killer and taking on more defensive responsibilities. I think there are a couple takeaways that I think are, are interesting here. From a bigger picture team perspective, I do think it's kind of interesting to note that it's been a really long time that Pedersen and Miller have been playing to the absolute peak of their potential at the same time concurrently because even as Patterson's kind of really turned on and, and gone on an absolute heater JT Miller I think at least for for the start of this season we've seen you know his de- his defensive play kind of um taper off and he's not the only one who struggled defensively let's be clear out of the top forwards but when you look at this team's two best forwards or, or who or who, who you'd expect them to be on paper, it's Pedersen and Miller. And it's interesting that in the 2021 portion of last season, uh, Miller was going absolutely bananas and Pedersen was off. And then when it came to the second half, I think that's, you know, I, I think at that point you could argue that they were both clicking together and well, there you go. That was kind of when the team was really rolling at its best. But since then, of course, in the, in the, in the, in the portion that we've seen so far this season, I don't think we've seen um, Miller kind of playing his 10 out of 10 sort of hockey, the the sort of potential that uh, we saw from him last season. And I think that that's just kind of interesting because when you think back to the most successful version of this core group, it's probably the 2019-20 season. And that's where for that full season and the bubble playoffs, you had both Pedersen and Miller playing complete, all-around, consistent hockey. And I think that's an important sort of, you know, just side note of um, of the kind of um, fact that I guess we haven't seen them working concurrently as often. But I think from a bigger picture perspective, that's the most important um, silver lining. That's the most important positive for the Canucks is Pedersen sort of proving that, yes, he is a franchise center. Because look, that that was a conversation at um, at the, you know, whether it was at the end of last December or uh, in early January was he had looked out of so out of sorts and, and you're right that it wasn't just his shots off it 
he looked he lacked a sharpness in, in how he was making plays. And it also came after a 2021 campaign where for the first eight to ten games of, of that season, he looked so lost. And again, that was a big part part of the reason why the, the Canucks started uh, slow out of the gate that year. He ultimately only finished with 21 points in 26 games, and then he missed the entire second half of the season. And there were lots of discussions about, okay, is this is this player durable enough to bet on for um, uh, you know a long regular season, and then um, as a, a long potential playoff run when eventually your core group can can get in? Can he be the best player on uh, on a winning team? Is he a high end first line center, or or are the Canucks still kind of missing that and he's defiantly answered all those questions where he's finally i think eclipsed the point per game mark over this uh, calendar year while uh, still showing that stellar two-way form and i think it's going to be really interesting to see because for me as we approach 2023 and we talk about the evolution of elias Pettersson, the next thing i'd like to see him sort of add to his repertoire is face-off ability because if he can learn to excel in that area, then I think he has serious potential as a high-end penalty killer. Because look, in zone and as a counter-attacking threat, we already know that he brings a lot to the table as a penalty killer. But until he can win face-offs at a really high-end rate, because that has such a significant impact on whether you can get that kill, uh, get that clear in the first uh, 20, 30 seconds and, and kill the clock. Um, until that happens, I don't think he's an ace penalty killer that you can look at and say, He's going to help turn the Canucks' efforts around by himself on uh, when you know when the team's shorthanded. So I'd love to see that evolution going into 2023. But regardless, it's been awesome to see him um, really return to being such a dominant first-line center. Yeah, and if he can get the power play going again in terms of his production there, I mean, now you could potentially see him rather than sitting there around that 20 mark in terms of league scoring, you can get him closer to the top 10, which I've always believed that's the type of player that he could be. And it was also around the time where his game started turning in early 2022 that Bruce Boudreaux also showed the confidence in him of letting him kill penalties. And it was a surprise to all of us. That was something Travis Green was never going to do. He was never going to put Quinn Hughes and, and Elias Pettersson out there on the PK, given how much ice they already had and just how valuable they were in other areas and didn't want him to get hurt. But from Boudreaux's standpoint, A, Pettersson wanted to do it. I uh, didn't necessarily want to be a big shot blocker, but he wanted to kill penalties. And Boudreaux felt that because he's such a dynamic power play uh, specialist that understands how a power play flows just positionally and with his offensive awareness that could allow him to have a significant defensive impact. And I think that confidence certainly helped him as well, but big picture now. Okay. So we've seen the best of him in a long sample size in this calendar year. What's the future for Elias Pettersson in this organization? Because this organization is going through a level of turmoil, right? Whether we like it or not, uh, we know what's going on with Bruce. We'll get into that later. We know what's going on with Bo Horvat. We'll get into that later. You know, the organization's made some choices as to who their guys are. Um, you know, I wasn't sure that Pedersen was necessarily mature enough to handle leadership. I think that Travis Green eventually tried to turn the room over to the players and the young core wasn't mature enough to handle it. Um, are they mature enough now to handle it? And the specter over all of this is the fact that the Canucks gave Pedersen a semi-bridge deal. It didn't walk him to free agency, but it 
gave him, you know, basically a year beyond that, right? A three-year deal. He's four years away from free agency. He's currently playing in the um in the second year of that deal. Now he can go this offseason and get a uh get an ex- uh get an extension at this point. The Canucks could potentially wait because they've still got two years worth of control. But for me, given the turmoil around this organization, I have believed that Pedersen was going to be walking, that he was going to be Johnny Gaudreau, that he was going to be Matthew Kachuk, and at some point there was going to be a message delivered to the organization this offseason that I'm not signing here. And I have had no conversations with J.P. Barry, his agent, or Pedersen to this effect. It's opinion. It's speculation. It's just the vibe I get, uh, you know, given where the organization is at and his desire to win, his stated desire to win. And yes, everybody wants to win. But when he was asked about his future, he has said, I just want to be somewhere where I can win. Now, recently, Rick Dollywall had a conversation with Agent J.P. Barry. He he confirms that he is going to have conversations. He's going to start conversations with the Canucks on Pedersen in the summer. He says, ultimately, it's up to the team, but they're open to extension talks. He says that Pedersen does want to sign long-term in Vancouver and does not want to go anywhere else. That could be agent talk. I don't know. But ultimately, if they're going to open up that conversation, it has to be over a long-term discussion or a long-term agreement, right? Otherwise, if you want to leave, you let your contract expire, you know, hold their feet to the fire and say, trade me now or sign me to a one-year and I'm going to walk. You know, like there's ways for the player to to have that exit strategy. Uh, Matthew Barzal was considered a comparable at $9.1 million. The Pedersen side said that. Quite frankly, if they can get Pedersen signed for $9.1 million on a long-term deal, sign me up because I think he can outperform that. Well, he's not going to be at nine. I mean, that um, I think it's going to be an eight-figure number for for his uh, for his next cap it, especially considering the way Sorry, that the eight-figure um, or an eight points or, or a number that starts with eight. You're talking uh, about eight an figure, eight-figure, like double di- like 10, 10 plus million. Yeah, so are you surprised that nine point one is a comparable to something the Pedersen camp came with? Oh, maybe a little bit. I, I think. Um, look, if you can, <laughs> if you can sign him for that Barzal, like you do that in a heartbeat. Like you don't even think twice. Um, I mean, I, I don't know. If I was in uh, Pedersen's camp's position, Pedersen's also kind of uniquely positioned where his, like, yes, he's eligible to sign an extension now, and, and maybe sort of securing that um, long-term bag as, as soon as possible is is a priority. But in two years' time, when he's going to be an RFA. That's when we're assuming that we're going to get a big jump in the cap. And when you get a big jump in the cap, um, there's obviously a difference. And, and at that point, then you'd be looking at Barzell's contract, even as not just the raw cap hit, but as a percentage of the cap. And, and if the cap's higher, then even if you're using Barzell as a comp, then that number would be higher than 9.1 million, even if you think that's a fair comparable statistically. I think it's too early to, to draw, I think, a a decisive sort of opinion that um, Pedersen's not going to, you know, he, that he's going to look at the situation and go, you know, he doesn't want to commit here long term given the turmoil. I, I do think it's interesting that, um, you know, I've I've been able to kind of, you know, have conversations in the past with with people close to him um, who are in no position to like sugarcoat it. If 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 it was a situation where he where he's totally unhappy in Vancouver, and the vibe I kind of got was. 
Pedersen genuinely really, really likes playing in Vancouver. Like he loves the the market. He loves the city. You're absolutely right that he wants to be in a wing, winning environment. Like he wants to get back into the playoffs. That's absolutely something that um, that he sort of thinks about. I mean, what player wouldn't wouldn't want to uh, be in a winning environment? But I do think it works at least in the Canucks' favor that he really has enjoyed playing in this market. And so I, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily uh, be too worried about that uh, yet. We'll see how things play out in terms of obviously Horvat's future and how management navigates replacing that massive hole in the roster and in what direction are they going to take in the franchise. Those are obviously going to be pertinent questions, but I'm, I'm not too worried about his, uh, his long-term future yet. Although in the big picture, that is the most important question in terms of where you're going to take this team, because if he's committed to, you know, staying here, it's probably a much shorter um, timeline in management's eyes to kind of try and expedite this process and become competitive compared to if there's a scenario where uh, he isn't um, sort of necessarily bought in or or he feels that uh, he doesn't see a long-term future here. So absolutely, it's going to be a really interesting discussion in the offseason and it's going to sort of, I think, dictate the the path that the Canucks kind of take in building um, this next phase of the team. One last thing on Pedersen before we move on to some other names. Assuming Bo Horvat is gone by the trade deadline, I think both of us assume that's going to happen. Um, is Elias Pedersen the next Canucks captain? If he if he's committed to staying here, I I I can you know, and he's willing to sort of grow as uh, as a as a leader. Then I, then absolutely, I think I don't I don't know if you give you turn it over to him right away because there's a ton that goes into being a captain. There's a lot of pressure. Um, there's a lot like we can all we can all tell that on the ice Pedersen leads and he plays with great habits and he's defensively aware and he works his tail off. But off the ice, it's there's a tremendous learning curve. So, you know, I, I'd be sort of looking at it, you know, when this conversation of captaincy co- comes up, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily turn it over to him right away. But if he's willing to commit to the team long term here. And and he wants to grow into that role. Yeah, I'm gonna give him that. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell him that. Yeah, that's up there for for the taking for you. And you kind of let him grow into that uh, leadership role as the as the, the room sort of starts being turned over to the young guys. Yeah, I wonder if that'll actually happen that way because I think the other guy that's going to be in the discussion is JT Miller, and the club, you know, for better or for worse, is going to have him here for a long time. And if you do that, you don't you can't necessarily make him s- captain. I like well, you know, you know how much I love JT, Look, but. You, but I look, I don't think you should, but certainly that was a discussion last year about who's the real captain. It's JT that stood up during COVID and said all of this stuff. And, you know, like the, the reality is, is that this organization doesn't have that next guy. And, you know, again, we'll get into the Horvath Don't name one. Wait. Well, yeah, wait like, until yeah, you Patterson's know what? Maybe ready. that's the idea because they did go a year without one before they named Horvat the captain. Because while everybody listening to this podcast doesn't like the media, right? And people on Twitter who follow us regularly and, and want to know what we have to say, don't like the media. Um, the reality is, is there is a statesman element to being a captain, especially in a Canadian market. Right. Um, and this club, it, like it's core does not have players that are good in the media. They don't. And they, they don't have that statesman type person. Like, could you imagine every game? This is not a Sadine like Swede. Pedersen's a different cat. 
And, and I'm not saying this with disdain because I respect his play on the ice big time. Right. And I've not had any challenging conversations with him off the ice. Right. I mean, you, you know, we previously we would, you know, you'd all at some point kind of get the death stare or whatever. Right. But it's not like he and I've ever had an argument. You and he have never had an argument. But the reality is there's nobody in this on this team. Right. Like the Nate, the guys you would look at are Luke Shen. He'll probably also be gone. Uh, Tyler Myers, you know, like on his way out. Right. Like they're not going to resign him uh, once they get to a favorable position in his contract. Like they don't have that next guy. So sometimes you just turn it over to the best players because to whom much is given, much is expected. So you're right. I mean, I, I think the best thing might be to just sit back and let's see who organically takes over in that leadership role. But I don't know that it's Pedersen. So uh, so we'll see. I mean, he's, I think if he wants it, I think he can grow into it. Personally, I, I think you're right that he hasn't, you know, like even forgetting the the media si- side of it or whatever, like that, like I'm not too worried about that. But even when it comes to overall being a leader and the sort of people and conflict resolution skills that are involved and and um, how you need to be a blanket for, for the whole team, like that's a lot to ask for out of, out of a, you know, obviously a, a player who in Pedersen, I don't think he's necessarily worn a ton of C's growing up on on previous uh previous teams i think there's definitely a learning curve and lots of teams um you know there are plenty of teams that uh, wait to name a, a captain sort of you know just have a leadership group with a's until um someone's ready uh, but i will say that with Pedersen, there's definitely been a different level of you know, like coming out of coming out of the other side of the struggles from last season and you're the and the year before, I do think we're seeing a version of Pedersen that's more dialed in, that's more serious, that's even more committed to winning. Um, even just having conversations with uh I, I mean, look, like right, you know, right during training camp, Pedersen was way more dialed in than I'd, you know, ever seen, you know, the previous couple seasons. Like there was just a seriousness, the way that he was carrying himself, it felt like he had um, the response, you know, he, he had the responsibility on on himself that, hey, I've got to be the best player on this team. He, and, and just from that, like, how rare is it that everybody, it was so obvious to everybody watching him in camp um, and, and, you know, all of those little cues that he would break out. Like, that, I think that speaks to, you know, him starting to mature. I think there's definitely areas for him to 100%. I think there are other areas, you know, where, which relate to being captain that he'd have to grow in. Um, but I think even the element of sort of, you know, being a leader and being the guy, I think it even, you know, part of that conversation even starts with on the ice and him getting the tough matchups and him being able to play best on best. And, and perhaps that's a responsibility we'll see more of when Bo's gone. But I think that's going to be part of um, part of the growing uh, uh, process too. I think he'll absolutely be ready for it, but there's going to be more and more slowly coming onto his plate. And um, and yeah, I'm going to be really in- interested to see because look, if if he commits here long term and and he and he's in um, you know of the frame of mind that I'm in it for the long haul, I believe in this franchise, I'm loyal to this franchise, then and, and he wants to be the guy. Then I think you've got to show some loyalty back to him and eventually allow him an opportunity to earn that type of distinction. Yeah, look, I think he's going to be part of the conversation. It's just a case of when he's ready and, and actually does he want it, right? And and that's like you said, he hasn't worn the C a lot previously. And I think he's comfortable being the being the man on the ice. I don't know that he's comfortable with the rest of it. I don't know that he wants that burden. 
but we'll see. Well, you know, at, at some point, everybody grows at different rates. Things that weren't important before may all of a sudden become important. And when you are the best player on the team, you you're going to get looked at in that role. It, there's just no way around it. It's just a case of whether or not it's what you want and whether or not you're ready and and how you deal with that added pressure of being the face of the franchise, not just on the ice, but also behind the scenes and off the ice. So we're going to take a quick break. We've spent a lot of time on Elias Pettersson, but there's so many other key elements to this team and organization that have, have had interesting moments over the course of the 2022 calendar year. We'll get into all of it when we return. Our review of 2022 continues, and the most significant order of business for Jim Rutherford, who was brought in as president late in 2021, because remember, he was brought in at the same time, roughly, give or take a couple of days, as Bruce Boudreau. Uh, It wasn't Rutherford that named Boudreau as head coach, and we'll get into the coach's situation, but he did a, a search to build out his management team, hired some assistant GMs. Um before actually settling on his actual GM, who turned out to be Patrick Alvine. The two men had a history together in Pittsburgh and certainly a a well-respected man around the league is a guy that potentially could be that next guy, but his first opportunity at that job. And many of us believed that Rutherford wasn't necessarily long for the presidency, that it was going to be a maybe a two-year thing on the outside, a three-year thing. So that GM hire, regardless of whether or not Rutherford as president was still going to have to sign off on all hockey decisions that that GM could eventually be like the long-term decision maker for all things hockey. And we just went through a first time GM in Jim Benning. That was an unmitigated disaster. 12 months into Patrick Alvine's job. Let's, uh, let's talk about where he's at. And I want to start it with the head coach, because I think a lot of us believe that it wasn't necessarily at the start of the year that it was Rutherford and Boudreaux that weren't necessarily on the same page. We might feel that now, and rightfully so, but going into training camp and into much of the offseason and the fact that Boudreaux didn't get an extension, we felt that it was Alvine and Boudreaux that didn't have a relationship and weren't on the same page, and that Boudreaux didn't coach the game the way Alvine thought coaching in this generation, what it should look like. So... Let's start there. Patrick Alvine, and there's a lot to digest with what he's done in 12 months, but how the coaching situation has been handled there. Yeah, it's honestly not too, like, I guess it was initially surprising given the um, the immediate success Boudreaux kind of had, but you can, when you step back, kind of understand it where Boudreaux just isn't Alvine's guy. Alvine didn't hire him. Um, I mean, Rutherford didn't really hire hire him either, even though he was aware that uh, ownership was moving in that um, in that direction. I mean, we even had Jim Rutherford on after hours mentioning that it was, you know, initially it was his understanding that Boudreaux's contract was only for last season, that it, you know, it wasn't necessarily going to run through um, this season as well, which to me was pretty interesting to see, to to sort of hear uh, Rutherford say that. I think Ultimately, we have a lot of situations where when a new GM comes in, inherits uh, a head coach, you don't see too many examples. I know, obviously, we saw, we've saw we seen pre, you know previous case studies of it in Vancouver, but otherwise, on a league-wide scale, we don't you know see too many instances of a GM coming in and inheriting a head coach and that GM automatically thinking, this is my guy, this is perfect, I'm, this is the long-term answer in a way. And I think clearly in Alvin and Rutherford's mind, their vision and understanding of what 
this group needs coaching wise is different than um, than what Boudreaux sort of provided. And I, and I think fundamentally it's a difference in, I think player accountability seems to be a big sort of re- recurring theme where I think management believes and they look at, um, you know, the, the core group of, uh, core group of players, the roster. And I think they sort of felt that they, you know, the team needed more of a, of a disciplinarian type, someone who is, uh, more hard, more detail oriented, less about just fun and, and good vibes and was, you know, a bit, a bit more strict and could hold guys accountable. And I think that's been a recurring theme, even internally when management and, and the coaches have had conversations and, um, you know, they, they've had discussions about the way different players have been handled is, um, you know, the, this idea that, well, are you holding the best players account accountable enough, um, often enough? And even when the team sort of, when we watch them play, um, defensively, there's been, you know, questions about is the work rate high enough or are, are they committed enough? And I think all that sort of ties back into sort of management's belief that they need more of a, of a hard ass type, but more of a detail oriented coach. Um, as opposed to where Boudreaux more kind of given the free reign. And, and I think that's, that's um, just a fundamental, um, you know, thing where that's, you know, Boudreaux going to coach a specific way and he, and he gets a lot out of teams offensively. And, um, and, and I think they just don't feel that his coaching style is right for this group of, you know, not only players, but more important personalities. And I think um, that's where we've seen the disagreement. And ultimately look, the, the writing's on the wall. Alvin's going to get a chance to hire his own guy at at, um, at some point here, whether you know, whether it may not happen mid season, but um, definitely in the off season is is when we're kind of um, expecting it. But overall, in the big picture, you know, for as much as it's been a storyline and an interesting sort of um, conversation, and as much as I definitely haven't liked how openly Boudreaux has been criticized, at the end of the day, it's not surprising to have a GM. Uh, a new GM sort of come into a situation and be like, the inherited coach isn't my guy. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, it's unfortunate because it does feel on some levels that rather or that um, Boudreaux never really had an opportunity, right? Uh, he's had his, he's going to have this year, uh, which was done before they got there and they're going to ride it out no matter what happens now. And, you know, maybe that's not fair. Maybe if all of a sudden he decided to change his coaching style after these decades of doing it one way, you know, for me, I think if they really wanted to get rid of him, you should have known coming into this year that he wasn't going to change. And they felt that, well, you know, he, I think they were quite frustrated and disappointed that he didn't change uh, in terms of his approach to, to certain things. But I think you're naive if you were going to think that he was going to all of a sudden have this complete transformation and dive into data. But you can ignore the results, right? Like well, at the end of the day, like they had management had to give him give Boudreaux another crack like they th- this group responded so well to him and I think like whether you agreed with the style or his methodology or not the results were too good to ignore he had like you had to give him another crack well no you're right but then ultimately that other crack was kind of predictable right like we knew those results weren't necessarily sustainable especially depending on what happened with goaltending was it though a lot of people still thought they were going to make the playoffs yeah, you know, I I thought they were. I didn't think they would necessarily match that pace they had a year ago, but I thought this could be a 97 or a 98 point team because of the offensive additions that they had made. Uh, you well, know, you, there you go. Like so, that like that's the justification for giving it a crack. But it wasn't necessarily going to result in better defensive play or de- better defensive structure, right? 
Like, I don't think, I, like, I certainly didn't expect that. But I thought maybe they could outscore some of their mistakes, which really, to this point, they have, right? Offense has not been this team's problem. It's been defense and not having elite goaltending that, that by and large, has been the biggest problem. So let's, uh, we'll, we'll get off the Boudreaux part of Alvin's brief tenure to this point. Let's talk about the personnel decisions that he's made. So first of all, last year, we saw some minor nibbling around the edges of the roster, right? They were able to acquire Travis Dermott. They were able to shed themselves of Travis Hamanick, who was, you know, a, a challenge for this team on a few different levels, right? Uh, first with the vaccine and then just, you know, the contract versus the performance. And they were able to exit that contract. Thank you, Ottawa. Uh, then in the offseason, the fact that they were able to win the Andre Kuzmenko sweepstakes. And, and it was, there was a lot of interest in the player. And I'm not saying it was partic- completely Alvin's um, recruiting that got him because ultimately the contract was going to be the contract regardless of where it was. But the organization on the whole had to convince him that this was the place for him and they were able to get that done. Uh, then there was the signing of Brock Besser to an extension. Um, you know, lots of conversation about asset management, and you can't just let this player walk. And they've uh, they've signed him to a contract, which is certainly not commensurate with his production. Uh, his production, in my opinion, has been entirely predictable based on the player's history. Um, I think many of us thought that. Anyway, let's not dive too deep into Besser, but that were in terms of Alvin major moves to this point, that was one. And then the biggest was the JT Miller contract. So what grade do you give Patrick Alvin to this point? It's a C for me. I think um obviously context is important here, right? Like Alvin and Rutherford sort of inherited a, a mess of a situation, quite frankly, on a number of, uh, of contract situations when they took over. Obviously, the OEL Garland trade turned out to be an absolute nightmare, and they sort of had to navigate with that uh, OEL anchor of, of a deal and having that no-move clause and that sort of being an impossible contract to move. Then um, you had a host of middle-class contracts as well. With, uh, with Tyler Myers, Tanner Pearson, Jason Dickinson, um, uh, Tucker Pullman, all inefficient relative to their cap. It's, and I think the, I think Alvin and Rutherford worked really hard to try and find creative solutions for Pearson, for Myers. Um, ultimately, did find an exit for Dickinson at a really high price. But I think the environment for moving out capital was even more, even more difficult than they had anticipated and, and they were ready for it to be difficult to move out uh, money. So I, I think that's, um, you know, I, I think that speaks volumes. I think they were actually close on being able to move Pearson's contract at one point, but that deal sort of, you know, fell through. Even when you look at the Brock Besser situation though, that was a bit of, um, you know, that was a really, really difficult contract situation too, because of the last administration's neglect in giving Besser such a high QO. What were you supposed to do in, in that sort of um, situation if you were Alvin and um, and Rutherford? I mean, I looked at looked at it from their perspective. And because of that uh, really high QO offer, Besser, you know, t- any team that liked Besser as a player would have then gone, okay, well, you know, he could... He could file for arbitration and we could be stuck with a cap hit that's higher than uh, what we can account for on the books. That's too much of a risk. We don't want him or, or if we do want him, we're not really going to give up anything for him. So his trade value is really limited, especially in a market where wingers weren't really going for anything. And I think, you know, you may disagree in terms of 
in terms of, you know, you, you maybe believed this was predictable the whole way. But, um, you know, I certainly thought that there was a chance that Besser could have bounced back. I mean, in the 2021 campaign, he had he was their best forward. He had 49 points in 56, in 56 games. He was coming off of um, a personal tragedy, and you were hoping that he could put that in the rearview mirror. And um, even in the second half, he was at least better and trending in the better direct in a, in a better direction. And so, from management's perspective, I didn't actually sort of you know saw the logic in their bet of okay, let's sign this guy to a bridge deal. Hopefully, kick kick the can down the road, and if he has a strong season, we can then um, actually turn him into a legit asset as opposed to I mean, what you know, trade him for peanuts in the off season or. Um, let him walk for for absolutely nothing. So I think that context is important. But absolutely, I think in the grand scheme, the bigger picture, there hasn't been, um, you know, there there have been a, a lot of uh, things that I haven't necessarily agreed with. I think it's hard to turn back from that um, that Miller extension, especially where that leaves you with um, with Horvat um, and him sort of. Um, you know, in a position now where we're wondering whether he's going to be um, still a Canuck beyond the trade deadline. I think um, we didn't see any forward-looking moves in terms of like, I, I think the biggest sort of thing that I haven't sort of agreed with or understood with uh, with Alvin's tenure so far is that the words and actions haven't really aligned where they'll say one thing and it'll it'll lead you to believe one you know one scenario about how they assess this team but then what they actually do in trying to bolster the roster doesn't make sense with that right like with Jim Benning he always believed that his like in his own heart he always believed that he could transform this team into a, a playoff one right away and that they were on the right track right so you could at least understand why he was always in win now mode with Alvin there seemed to be an understanding of the flaws on this roster, right? Even when he was discussing the Boudreaux bump, for example, he referenced the fact that, you know, he poured a ton of cold water on it. He said, Demko's been um, the best goal in the league from December onward. So, you know, that part of it wasn't, you know, we, we weren't playing sustainably well as a team. Our, our, our five on five play wasn't that great, especially defensively. We were too reliant on special teams. And, you know, we're not fast enough was uh, what uh, Rutherford often brought up. And yet, despite sort of pointing to all of these flaws and sort of um, giving off a perception that he didn't believe in the Boudreaux bump, their actions, you know, they they sort of went all in on, on you know, committing to this win now sort of um, uh, direction with obviously the Miller extension instead of dealing him uh, for futures with signing Ilya Mikheyev, the fact that they didn't trade for any draft picks or uh, futures, the fact that they, in fact, um, going into uh, this season, traded a second round pick for short term, short term cap relief to get off of that Dickinson contract. I, I think I just can't square that part of it. Well, you're not wrong. And what about what they weren't able to get done? Because they went into the offseason saying, look, we're going to get better on the right side of our blue line. And they didn't. Right. And they knew what the flaws were. And they were they aggressive enough. Right. How much of it is just market forces and how much of it is just them not being aggressive enough and doing what needed to be done to improve that part of the team? They certainly weren't able to shed cab space outside of Dickinson. And there were other inefficient deals. And they knew that they they had. Openly said, we need to move money, and they really couldn't do it. 
I think just to kind of answer the question that you kind of raised there, I think it was predominantly market forces. Moving money out last season was just so, so exceptionally difficult. But I think where management erred is, is so like, okay, like I can look at it and go, I understand why you didn't, um, you know, move up money. I, I don't know if it's necessarily aggressiveness would have solved it, but what, where you where where I disagree, where, where I think the you know management made a mistake was okay. If you look at the circumstances and say, man, this is a really difficult environment to move money in. It's going to be near impossible to upgrade the blue line. And, and Rutherford, of course, in that same after hours interview with Scott Oak was sort of saying, it's oh, it's not fantasy hockey to upgrade the blue line. Whatever, um, it's not as easy as, as it looks. Well, all right, I I'll buy all of that. I actually sort of agree and see the merit. But if that's a reality of the cards that you're dealt with, then it's nonsensical to sort of continue down this win now route. Like it, if that's the takeaway in terms of we can't get the things done that are necessary to improving this roster in the short term, then that should have been that should have you know lit up a light bulb to sort of say, all right, we've got to think about a different blueprint. We've got to think about a different plan. We've got to have a longer term view of how we're going to turn the ship around instead of just all right, let's try and scramble and, and find uh, a way to make this roster playoff caliber anyway. Yeah, for sure. I, like it didn't square with what they know. And maybe what's happened to the first part of this season really enforces, reinforces to them what needs to happen. And as we grade all V, and I think it's only fair to grade Jim Rutherford in that because you know he's looking yep. over it. You know that he's just as involved as uh, as Alvin is in all of this, certainly in the Bo Horvat discussions it's Rutherford that's front and center. So I, I think the grade, the C grade certainly applies to both of them. One thing I want to quickly bring up is just at least sort of silver lining, because, you know, I, I feel like we've, we've ripped them a lot on, on the, on the pod is I, I, I at least like that they've shown a baseline level of competence in terms of the, you know, a lot of the pro scouting decisions and who they've kind of um, uh, targeted. Like at least there hasn't, I mean, it's a low bar, but there hasn't been like, a Jay Beagle or Erica Branson type acquisition where you're like, oh my God, what are they, uh, you know, what are they doing? And you, when you look at some of the players that they were able to bring in aside from just Kuzmenko, um, on more on the fringes, obviously, but um, obviously the Ethan Bear acquisition has worked out. Um, J- Joshua and uh, Oman are young, young pieces who are acclimating well to fourth line roles for cheap. Um, and I think the bear sort of, te- you know, acquisition and sort of what they did with Dermot is kind of a template of how this management group believes it can in part sort of work to rebuild the blue line. Because you look at the way Rutherford rebuilt that uh, back end in uh, in Pittsburgh, it really was kind of bargain bin shopping with the way that they were able to bring in John Marino and how he was a uh, top four stud for them. Uh, the way that they got, uh, they bought um, Justin Schultz is a distressed asset and how they rehabilitated him, um, how they turned this, uh, the inefficient Rob Skidari contract into um, Trevor Daly, who was an absolute staple for them in the top four. So, um, you know, that's at least one positive is that um, they've shown some competence in um, many of their uh, pro scouting decisions. But yeah, overall, it, uh, it hasn't been pretty in terms of the work they've uh, accomplished. So we touched on Besser. So we'll transition back into the players. We touched on Besser. And, you know, I, I do agree with you in the small sample size. I, I thought that having the personal tragedy of his father's passing behind him um, might bring out a different level of consistency, just, you know, not having that emotional weight. Uh, I've completely turned in that regard. And, and I believe that Brock Besser can still be a 30-goal scorer in this league. It's just not going to be here. Uh, yeah. He needs he needs change. 
Um, he's clearly not a core piece of this organization anymore. And ultimately, they haven't rehabilitated his value to the point where he's going to have any more value. It's still going to be sweeteners attached or trading him for basically nothing. They've just kicked the can down the road for a year. Um, is there another outcome to this as you see it with Brock Besser? Do you see him playing out all three years of his contract or do you think ultimately he's going to get moved? It's just a case of when? I'd be pretty surprised. I mean, we've discussed this before, but for both sides, um, I think it is time to move on. And even when management signed that contract, I don't think they viewed him just based off of you know the, the sense that I got. I, I never sort of thought that management viewed him as a core player in the same way that they viewed um, some of the other players on this uh, roster. And ultimately, when you step back and look at his 2022 um, calendar year, it is it, it is tough to kind of look at it, um, especially in the wake of the slow start um, goal scoring wise this season, looking at 18, just 18 goals in, in 65 games. He's only gotten eight even strength goals in 65 games. Like even 10 of those 18 were power play ones um, where just at five on five, he hasn't been able to move the needle nearly enough. I mean, for reference, Ilya Mikheyev already has eight even strength goals matching what Besser has in just 26 games as Canuck. Um, Alex Chason, I'm looking here, had um, had seven even strength goals in 40 uh, games in the calendar year of 2022, like just one back of Brock. And we, we know what Alex Chason is, this player. Um, Yuhal Amico at six. Um, Kuzmenko already has six even strength goals in 28 games. Heck, uh, J- Dakota Joshua already has five. So, I think you're you're at a standpoint where Besser just um, doesn't deliver enough even strength value. I think um, it's in it's in both sides. It's interest to kind of um, look to uh, to move on at uh, at some point. And I think from the Canucks' standpoint, you're just hoping that he can um, you know find a way to get on a hot streak at at some point just to just to make things um, easier from that standpoint. Yeah, and you know he did. There, there was a report a couple of weeks ago that his agent's been given the opportunity to explore possible trades. Um, he didn't necessarily uh, deny it when we asked him about it, um, kind of turn the subject a little bit and, and understand. I think we all believe that Brock Besser is a really, really good person. And, um, 100%. you know, like you wish him the best. This is not us saying this guy's a bum, get him out of here. There's none of that. But sometimes change is good for both sides. And, and it would be hard to begrudge Brock Besser for all that he's been through at this point for for wanting a fresh start right and and i think he'll benefit by it and i just don't think the club people are going to look at it when he scores 30 and say see we let that guy get away for nothing but he was not going to be that player here so um you know and we'll see what the trickle down effect is with that because as i talk about petterson's future and what his desired future is he he and brock besser are close so you know uh not having him here is going to bother petterson but ultimately you know we talked about asset management versus opportunity cost. And I think the asset management won out earlier on Besser. It might be opportunity cost that uh, ultimately wins out later. Uh, Bo Horvat, big subject. Um, And this ties into management because ultimately all of those decisions they made put them in this situation. Now, the Canucks had an opportunity to sign Bo Horvat this summer for less. Uh, The organization tried to heavily lowball him. There's reports that the AAV on the first offer they made was even lower than what his current $5.5 million AAV is. And it certainly never got into the $7 million range that his camp believed he was worth before. And now 
the Canucks then set their, after making the choice, and Jim Rutherford's been open about this, we couldn't lose both Miller and Horvat. They were convinced that Miller was a center, and they, they couldn't lose them both. So when they couldn't get the Horvat deal done, they quickly turned and got Miller done. And now they're stuck because Miller clearly doesn't look like he's a center. Maybe in two years he shows us something different, but that's going to be a serious project to turn JC, J, JT Miller into a functional, effective top six center in the National Hockey League, which is what this organization will need him to be when Bo Horvat eventually gets moved. Um, people talk about comparables. You created your own comparable by signing JT Miller to the contract you signed him to. Yeah, I think the Canucks were hoping that that extra year of term was going to really be a, a selling point that we can give you the eighth year, but that's meaningless because if you trade him, he can get that same term with the trade partner. Um, you know, these, those types of things happen all the time, but, but they created their own comparable. And right now there is no comparison and people say, well, Horvat's not going to, the scoring rate's not sustainable, but 99 points for JT Miller wasn't sustainable. So how much is management to blame? Because they'll turn around and say cap and previous contracts that we were saddled with. Ultimately it's this management group's fault in my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's it's as simple as they picked the wrong guy in the offseason. I think at this point, if you're talking about, okay, well, after you sort of um, made the mistake, how are you going to um, sort of a- approach the situation now? In my mind, I just hope that they don't become desperate to try and resign him at over $8 million per year. I mean, I sort of referenced this um, on a recent pod, but at the end of the day, Horvat's career high is 61 points, right? Like for as hot as he's been this season and I'm, and look on the open market, I'm sure there'll be a team that'll give him eight, eight plus million dollars. I'm not sort of here to here, here to argue that Mark Horvat Horvat's market value isn't at least 8 million, but from what the Canucks should do, the last thing they need at this point is to give a player in their in their late twenties a retirement package contract, something that's like eight years at um at over eight million. I mean, let me ask you ask you this farhan. And this is something I think for for a lot of fans to consider because I think at, at this point I've seen, you know, polls and a lot of people would be sort of um happy with say something like eight by eight. If I asked you before this season, Farhan, would you sign eight by eight for Bo Horvat? Would you would you have said yes? No, uh, but ultimately the Canucks created their own comparable. I wouldn't have signed JT Miller for eight by eight. Sure. So like that that should dem- demonstrate a point though, where like if, if we're in agreement, and I certainly wouldn't have, wouldn't have signed Horvat, um, you know, at um at something like that, uh, like that number either. I think that goes to show you that okay, if that's the price now, then you shouldn't let twenty nine games of an absolute heater sort of change your mind in a massive way about what his market value is. Again, obviously, if you had gotten ahead of it and, you know, had those conversations and prioritized Bo over Miller, you would have had him at a lot cheaper than eight million. So I'm not there to argue that, oh, you know, they 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 um that they didn't play it wrong. They absolutely did did play it wrong. But if we're having a conversation of, okay, right now, what are they going to do? What what how should they approach things? Um, should they just leave it as it is and sort of look to move him? Um, you know, I, I think you've got to be really careful about making the sort of commitment 
um, it, you know, based off of uh, recency bias. Because again, I think most Canucks fans before the season, you know, let's say the, on day one of the regular season, discussion was, okay, we've re-signed Miller. Um, now, would you also like to sign um, Bo at um, eight by eight or even eight million times seven years? Most fans would have been like, heck no. So I don't think 29 games, 30 games, 31 games should, you know, sort of change that uh, perception. And the Canucks have to be careful about not overpaying. So at this point, I think, I just think it's in the club's best interest. You've already made your, your bet on Miller, right? There's no indication that management's turning around and looking to sort of rectify that and, and ship him out and then re-sign Bo. So in the absence of that, I don't think, like there's no way it makes sense to keep both guys long-term. So as difficult as it is to move on from your captain, it's um it's the right decision at this point. You have to trade him. Yeah, they've backed themselves into this decision. And, you know, for me, when when Bo issued the statement about not wanting to talk about his contract and then talk to us about it, um, you know, I, I had some pretty flattering things to say about Bo, which weren't recency bias. He's been that guy for a long for sure. time. He's an incredible human being. Um, does that mean the Canucks should double down here? No, it doesn't. Right. I, I'm not suggesting that for sure. They have made a mistake and now they're going to have to live with it and they can't, can't compound it and double down on the mistake by bringing in Bo Horvath. Now, if there was a way to extricate yourself from the JT Miller deal and re-sign Bo, I'd do it tomorrow, but I can't see that happening. And, you know, when you talk about failings of management, not trading JT Miller a year ago or during last, before last year's trade deadline, when he was playing unbelievably well, that was as big a mistake as they've made. Well, I think part of it was also the type of return that they were targeting. It's It's been interesting to kind of hear what they were maybe looking for. It wasn't just, you know, we want a straight futures package. They wanted young pieces that could help right away. And again, that sounds great in theory, but when when teams are interested in JT Miller, they don't want to give up value off their roster or give up young pieces that are pretty much ready to contribute right away. They want to give you prospects who are, um, you know, might take two or three years to develop or, or they're ready to give you draft picks. And I think Vancouver's sort of insistence on, well, we don't just want a futures sort of package and have to wait a long time for a lot of these assets to develop and help our hockey club. I think that made it a lot more difficult to execute that trade. Bottom line is they overplayed their hand, and I'm telling you, they will do the same on Bo Horvath. Like in, in what way? Well, like they're going to ask for an exorbitant package, and will they settle? Alvin said he's, we're not letting them walk away for nothing. So maybe this time they're going to have to settle. But if anybody believes that around the National Hockey League, like we all fall in love with our own guys, right? I mean, think of the angst around trading a Yannick Hansen or a Tyler Mott or whatever it happened to be, right? Like you get, you you overvalue their their um, perception of the marketplace. Eddie Lack was probably the biggest, right? And I was guilty yeah, of that one at the time. I was guilty of that right? at the time too. So we, we tend to do that. So in the end, we'll see if they back it up. But it'd be so easy for them to say, well, like Bo is better now than JT was then, and he's scoring at a crazy rate. Any team would want him. Look at the leadership and intangibles he brings, and you know he's so good in the faceoff circle. All of which is true, but it didn't work for JT Miller, who at the time was masquerading as a center. So I don't know how they're gonna. They think they they're gonna get the haul that they expect with Bo Horvat. So do I think he's gone? Yes. Do I think they should try to move him given their current circumstances? Yes. Is it saddening and disappointing that it's come to this? Yes. They are going to screw it up. 
And if you think that you're you're going to get everything you want, and the fans that are out there listening, if you think you're getting a haul for Bo Horvat, think again. That doesn't mean they should double down, but set your expectations lower because it's not going to be what you think, sadly. Um, we're, I know we're going way over on these topics because they tend to be so emotional. For, for, want, want, want to quickly touch on uh, on Hughes? Uh, you know, bring some bring some positivity to the table. I want to get into Hughes and Demko before we go. So, so you go. Let's go, Hughes. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, I'm curious to see what you've kind of noticed. I think um, the start of the season maybe hasn't been his most uh, stable defensively, but considering the 2021 campaign he had, where he put up the points, but it's a bit of a nightmare season for him defensively. He'd be the first one to admit. I mean, I even remember going into the start of last season, you know, having to debate Dom on whether he was just Tyson Berry 2.0. And I'm like, stop it, guys. Like, there was a serious change in, in um, you know, in terms of his perception and reputation around the league uh, off the back of his defensive struggles in 2021. It's been heartening and delightful to see Hughes, you know, rebound in terms of his two-way play, stabilize and prove that he is more than just a guy that puts up a ton of points on the power play, that he is a legit number one D. And I think that's essential um, to this club's long-term fortunes is the fact that him and Pedersen both have sort of proven that they're still star pieces. Yeah, look, I, I think his defensive game has stabilized. He's never going to be an elite defender, but I, I think the you know the liability that he showed in 2021 um, – there has been an improvement. There's no doubt. But I also don't think his offensive dynamic play, his ability to exit the zone, just his skating generally, uh, and his ability to control games and control the puck, I don't think it's back. Now, I'm not throwing him under the bus because I do think there's an injury at play here, right? So I I'm waiting to see what the offensive side of the game looks like. And I know the assists are there, and a lot of that's happening on the power play. Um but you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? That, You're not wrong. Like I, previous I definitely, year, when when he could skate it and do what he wanted, when he, you know, what did uh, Bocci say? Walks the blue line like Michael Jackson. Like it, there was there was that end of his play that I haven't seen consistently. Now again, um, he's not playing as poorly as say Pedersen did in 2021 at the at, you know in the first at the end of 2021 before the calendar change. Um, there has been a stabilization of the defensive play. Like I said, I think the skating is injury-driven. Uh, and he's still playing a ton of minutes, so you've got to give him credit. But I'm not willing to give him a complete grade yet. I think it's incomplete until he's healthy. Sure, but I think, um, and, and you know, none of what you said in terms of his recent form is necessarily, necessarily wrong, but his overall body of work in 2022 is, you know, I think has been really strong and I think I'm not worried about it at all because again, I think considering the start of the year that he had in terms of, you know, coming back from that injury and um, clearly not looking hundred percent and having to eat up a ton of exorbitant minutes, I think, um, you know, ability wise, when I look at the big picture of what we saw in 2022, I have full faith and confidence. And I think what we've seen in terms of his recent form, in terms of maybe there's another gear to a lock, I think it's just a blip in the radar I think for me, it's just massive for him to kind of rebound the way that he did after 2021, because I think people forget how quickly even parts of this market were sort of um, not, I don't want to say turning on Hughes, but there was a lot of criticism being directed on his way. And I'm not necessarily saying that was wrong because his defensive play was that bad. It was that concerning at that time. Um, 
but it's been essential for him to kind of decisively bounce back and prove that, hey, look at me. I am still a legit number one franchise defenseman. Yeah, you know, and, and I think part of the regression was also injury related, right? So th- this guy, don't call him injury prone because he plays through a lot, right? Like he he is out there playing 25 minutes a night uh, despite whatever he's dealing with, right? So I, for me, I haven't lost faith in Quinn Hughes on any level. Great for the Canucks to have him signed for six years, uh, five more. But um, like I said, I miss that electric player. It'll come back. And, and we've still seen flashes of it. I, I fully believe it will. But I want to see him control games with his skating the way he did previously. I, I want that back. Yeah. I mean, he has. Don't for tell me it's back because it's not. He has for most of 2022 is the point. Remember, this is not a, a recap of this season today. This is 2022. We're talking about no, you're, you're right. uh, looking back at the year. So totally, totally fair. Totally fair. The the back end of last season, he was that guy. And, you know, he he's shown good things in the front half of this season. Hasn't necessarily been that guy, but I fully believe it'll come back. Will it come back for Thatcher Demko? So Thatcher Demko was insane to start the 2022 calendar year. But as we got closer to the end of February, his form started to drop. And we understand that there was an injury at play there as well. Um, It went from incredible top of the league play to merely average. I'm not going to say he struggled. Uh, Thatcher Demko, the final two months of last season, was better than anything this organization has seen in goal this season by either goaltender. Uh, but what he was doing the first two months of last season was otherworldly. Um, now, the front half of this season, we are told that an injury was not to blame for his drop in form. And let's not kid ourselves, there was a drop in form. There was yep. an alarming drop in form where he couldn't get to 900 in terms of save percentage. Um, expected goals were significantly lower than what they were a year ago. And then the injury. Came. So this is not new for goaltenders, right? I mean, even the best of the best, even Carey Price had an offseason. And I'm willing to say this is going to be that. And when he comes back, we might not see it this year because when he does come back, there's going to take some time for him to actually get his form back. But by next season, I fully expect him to be incredible again. Maybe. Okay. And I say that because. There's been a a side to Demko's personality, and I know the fans out there are going to say, oh, just because he's not good with the media. I don't view this as media, okay? I view it as accountability, and that's where the best leaders in this organization have always stepped up because generally that accountability is also reflected in what we get on the ice in terms of a level of consistency and an ability to bounce back. But there's been a side to Thatcher Demko that simply has been surly. He's not wanted to be accountable, even when he wasn't playing poorly a year ago, right? Like I think from three weeks before the trade deadline to the end of the season, he spoke twice. This year, for whatever reason, he's been incredibly difficult to deal with. Um, And there's an act there that even people in the goaltending community kind of roll their eyes at, not just media. So if he is not going to grow up 
I don't, I'm not 100% sure that he gets it back to the level that he was at before. And, and some uh, people just view it as competitiveness. Some people will just say, oh, he's just being competitive. And look, this guy's got ability. But there does need to be a growth factor here. Because in, early in his career, he was incredible, right? And then all of this, like, to deal with. And then all of a sudden, when it kind of just went average, he became difficult. And this year, when there was no injury playing his play wasn't great. He became downright difficult coming out of the gate. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm trying to figure out why, because it wasn't confrontation, right? Like it, it's not like he had a bad experience collectively in our industry, the small amount of media we have, and don't think it's this big group as I, as I hit everybody constantly with his tires have been pumped incredibly by this marketplace. So I see a maturity issue there. And it's not me taking myself too seriously. I see a maturity issue and that's got to come back in order for his play to come back. Okay. So could he have handled this better in, in terms of not hiding and sort of being more accountable? Absolutely. Is there, um, you know, would I have liked to see him deal with it a bit better? Absolutely. But I'm not going to go as far as to say that it's necessarily a maturity issue. To be honest, well, I, what is it? I mean, like, I don't Grow think it's up. the end. Quit being petulant. Grow up. Okay, but how much does that honestly have to do? Like, look, at the end of the day, you still see it with Demko in terms of how hard he takes it on himself and how much he beats himself up. And it's and, I, and I'm going to say this again. It's the first time that he's going through this. I'm not going to point to that and say, you know, that you know that's a maturity issue and that all of a sudden makes me less confident that he's going to turn it around in the big picture in terms of his on ice play i don't think it relates to his on ice play i don't think it's as that you know nearly as big of an issue i think it's a huge issue i don't uh, think know, so i've talked about i've talked to other people in the organization like you know he's he, there's a change there and we've seen a change in a goaltender named roberto luongo but it changed completely the other way right right like Roberto, when he first got to Vancouver, his play was incredible. He was a diva. And it wasn't until the 2011 going through the cup and losing in game seven that he kind of turned that part of his personality around and became this incredible guy. And to be honest, his play was great all the time, right? There were some foibles in the playoffs from time to time before 2011. But generally, his there was a con consistent body of work in his play all the way through. So maybe Demko is going to be that guy. I still bet on his talent and his on ice work ethic i think those are you can say what you want in terms of you know you know the way that he's maybe handled this the first time the adversity but i think you know his again his work ethic in terms of the work that he puts in to become the best version of, of himself possible combined with the talent that he has i think those two things are unimpeachable and as long as he still has those two things in a clean slate of uh, of health I'm still betting on him absolutely being one of uh, one of the you know a top ten goaltender in the in the National Hockey League. You know what? We'll never know, and I'll tell you why. Because I'm also betting on him to come back, and I know for people who are going to be critical of me for being critical of him, I'm not taking it back. But I think you're going to see a maturity with it when it comes back. So we'll never know because he's not going to be a great player and have this act. I'm telling you right now, he will not be a great player and have this act. I but think then both, how did how did he how did he maintain turn. it for so long? Because he wasn't that guy. Before he became a starter, when he first became a starter, early on, he like you talk about him taking it on himself, right? You're a thousand percent right. 
Like we would go into those availabilities with him and he would really, really beat himself up. The, you know, when we got him now, there's been way less of that. The few times we've had a chance to talk to him, like that level of taking it on, there's been a lot less of that. There's just been terseness. Cut him some slack. It's the most difficult. It's again, it's the first time he's been through something like this. It's the most difficult, um, you know, phase, I'm sure, of his um, hockey career in general. He's still young. He's a young player, and I have confidence that he'll grow up. I think there's enough people around him that will make him see the light, and he'll grow up. And I think that will work hat in hand with his play. So for everybody out there that is going to turn around and say, oh, you hate Demko, uh uh-uh, I think he's going to turn it around for the reasons that you outlined, right? I mean, there is talent there, and there is work ethic there. And I haven't come across a lot of lazy goalies in this generation. Um, but. You know, and he's got an incredible goaltending coach in Ian Clark. But um, I think with it will come some maturity. I I don't think that the two things are going to happen separately. So you and I are never going to know because the play is going to come back and his attitude is going to change. But it won't be the other way around. So I can can get what you're saying. I just view the growth and the maturity as essentially, I don't want to say guarantee, but inevitable. I mean, anytime you you overcome something difficult, you're going to be a better person. You're going to be stronger mentally. You're going to be more mature. So that's, I think, I, I just kind of view it as, okay, like if he hasn't dealt with it the best way so far, um, I mean, he's like, I just view it as a given that he's, that he's, that, that it'll work itself out. Yeah. I mean, we're probably on the same page in that regard, but I am going to point it out because Fair, yeah. it is real and it's part of the problem. Right. Like it's you can debate what is cause and what is effect, but it is part of the problem. He doesn't, you know, believe me, like 28 years in harm. I don't need to be liked like it's good. Right. Like I've dealt with surly athletes before. I'm not personally offended, truly. So it's not about me taking myself too seriously. It's me having seen these players come and go and common denominators. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, like. There was there was never a warm, fuzzy element to Jacob Markstrom. Like there were some jokes here and there, but the the professionalism and the accountability was constant. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was surly. Who cares? Be surly. We can view that as being competitive, but like do, do you know what I'm saying? Like this is different. Yeah. Right. So we we don't need warm and fuzzy, but there there has to be professionalism to what you're doing. You can't hide, you can't duck, you must be accountable. Whether, whether Markstrom liked the question, Michael Russo, Sean McIndoe, Haley Salvian, Max Boltman, and Corey Pronman, as for us, follow us on the VanCast, your fa- or follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform, and leave a rating and a review. You can also subscribe to The Athletics uh, NHL YouTube channel at youtube.com at The Athletic Hockey Show. You can also get a new subscription to The Athletic for just $2 a month for 12 months when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. The VanCast returns next week with a live room. I was Drancher myself. I think that's on the 29th and uh, I'll be tanned. Clearly I need it. Uh, I'm going to be spending the next 10 days in Cabo. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And to our VIPs, happy holidays from harm. Myself, our producer, Jeff Demet. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening and keep following your favorite hockey team here in Vancouver. Strum, and I think it was Soros. All three of them got off to slow starts, right? Markstrom's still working through his, uh, his pain. I think, 
Uh, Soros and Shesterkin have started rebounding recently, but in both of those markets, Soros' start was a big reason why the Predators were struggling early in the year. He was below 900 for a long while. And then Shesterkin, Rangers fans are freaking out that, oh my God, what happened to our franchise goaltender who had one of the best goaltending seasons of all time and has looked so pedestrian uh, we even saw, you know, Connor Hellebuck is playing to a Vesna caliber level this season, and he's going to be one of the front runners for that uh, for that race this season. But last couple of years were quite up and down, and definitely not up to par for him. So, um, you know, again, we we've, we've touched on this before, but goaltenders going through these ups and downs and um, having volatility in their in their play, it's it's par for the course. Uh, that part I'm with you. And with that, we're going to wrap up this uh, holiday e edition, this uh, season and review edition for the Vancouver Canucks. We'll see what they come back like when we do this again. But wow, this team never fails to disappoint just in terms of talking points and, and entertainment value in terms of not just on the ice, but just the overall theater and storylines and narratives around this team. Uh, fun is one word for it, Harm. It's uh, it's going to be a roller coaster again in 2023. I, I, I bet you. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, meanwhile, you got anything going on the holidays? What's up? What's happening with uh, with Harm World? Ooh, that's a good question. I got a bunch of my uh, friends um, finally coming back into town. You know, they've uh, they've been finishing up uh, university and you know various you know uh, various different um, parts of uh, parts of North America. So it's gonna. I'm really looking forward to uh, to hanging out with them. I've taken some time off. I might be going to. Uh, the the contact uh music festival so that's uh that's gonna be a blast i'm gonna do my gen z thing and wow. list of artists that uh that you've never heard of so uh it's, I've uh, heard it's of them. Be like blast. i said my teenage son brings this <laughs> stuff into the house all the time he, he sings rap lyrics all the time he, I, he doesn't even know he's doing it he just does it <laughs> so believe me i get i might know who i might not, i might not know which artist he, he's singing but he it, there's always some of it so i'm sure you could appreciate it yeah, fair enough. Anyway, uh, before we go, we do want to remind hockey fans to make sure you subscribe to the Athletic Hockey Show for all your NHL news. The show publishes six times a week with all our with our all star roster of hosts. Ian Mendez, son's walking in over my shoulder, giving me the stink eye. Ian Mendez, Julian McKenzie, Craig Custance, Sean Gentilly, Rob Pizzo, Jesse Granger, Michael Russo, Sean McIndoe, Haley Salvian, Max Boltman, and Corey Pronman. As for us. Follow us on the VanCast, your or follow the VanCast on your favorite podcast platform, and leave a rating and a review. You can also subscribe to the Athletics uh, NHL YouTube channel at youtube.com at the Athletic Hockey Show. You can also get a new subscription to the Athletic for just two dollars a month for twelve months when you visit theAthletic.com/vancast. The VanCast returns next week with a live room uh, with Drancher and myself. I think that's on the 29th, and uh, I'll be tanned. Clearly, I need it. I'm going to be spending the next 10 days in Cabo, so that's going to be a lot of fun. And to our VIPs, happy holidays from Harm, myself, our producer, Jeff Demet. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening, and keep following your favorite hockey team here in Vancouver.